0: welcome to the brown don't frown podcast with your host tanya hardcastle we're here to engage in a thoroughly inclusive conversation with women from different backgrounds shaped by our cultural racial and social experiences we share our stories hello everyone hope you can hear me if not uh, please do let us know so welcome. We are switching things up for the first time with Brown Don't Frown to bring you a live podcast. Just to let you know, this session will be recorded and published as a podcast episode on Brown Don't Frown. Out of respect to us and to others, we'd ask you not to record this, please. Um, thank you to everyone who is attending tonight, and to everyone who has contributed so far by sharing your housing stories, which we'll be discussing today. Um, We hope to be able to unpack the experiences of social housing, community cohesion, financial decision making, cultural and social mobility, sexism, intergenerational living as told through your voices. If you do have any questions during the discussion, please do put them in the chat box function. Following the discussion, we will be opening up the floor for audience participation to answer your questions and facilitate what we hope to be an interactive discussion. For those of you who uh, want to get involved, you're welcome to do do so. And if you don't know already, my name is Tanya Hardcastle. I'm the founder and host of Brown Oak Brown Podcast, and I'll be co-presenting today with a lovely Priya Shah.
1: Priya, would you like to tell us a bit more about yourself? Sure. Thanks. Um, thanks, Tanya, for the um, introduction. And um, just a uh... Very warm welcome to everyone. Um thanks for tuning in um on what is a very, very warm um week. So we do appreciate you being here and not outside and enjoying um the sun because um it is a little bit cooler this week. Um or at least um, Today. Um, so, yeah, a little bit about me. Um, I'm Priya Shah. Some of you um, may or may not know me. Um, I am the founder of BAME in Property, um, which is an organization to um, help bring more ethnic diversity to the built environment sector. So, this covers everything from planning to real estate to architecture to health infrastructure you name it. Built environment is extremely broad. And I set this organization up um, nearly three years ago now after seeing that the sector itself wasn't very diverse, project teams that I was working in weren't very diverse, the communities that I was going to work in also weren't. representative within our own project team. So if you think about London, for example, nearly 45% of London's population is from an ethnic minority background, and that is huge. However, only 1.2% of the built environment sector is from an ethnic minority background. So there's a huge disparity there. And what this has resulted in is just um, planning policy going wrong. We are not essentially building for the communities that we are there, um, ready to um, actually build homes So, that is um, why I set up Bain Properties since then. I've been um, holding numerous events, physical. Um, During the COVID 19 lockdown, I've been holding virtual events and really exploring um, the impact of the pandemic on ethnic minority communities, particularly from a housing and planning perspective, as that is my field. Um, More broadly, I like to consider myself an urbanist, um, which sounds like a really kind of Ponzi word which encompasses everything and nothing at the same time. Um, I really cover kind of politics, um, society, and diversity within the work that I do kind of really embeds in, in everything that I do and gives me that strategic direction in um, all of my work. So that really does um, kind of guide everything that I do. And um, hopefully it will help with this session today, It really guides my research. So yeah, thank you, um, Tanya, for um, inviting me onto your um, podcast. I'm really looking forward to the discussion and what this session has to hold.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much, Priya. It was a very enlightening introduction to your organization, um, and I'm sure many people will follow it uh, following the discussion who haven't done so already. And before we do delve into the topic more broadly, it's interesting to be able to reflect, I guess, and set the scene for today's discussion, looking at the wider South Asian migration context. Um, So according to the latest census from 2011, which I now appreciate is pretty dated, Um, And I think we'll be updated next year, but we can work with what we've got so far at the moment Um, And according to the 2011 census, we've got 4.5 million South Asians living in the UK Which accounts for 7% of the population. I'm pretty sure it's quite a bit higher than that Um, And hopefully when we do get the updated statistics We'll have a clearer picture of how many actually do live in Britain Um, I guess if you look at the wider context of migration to England. Um, It began with the arrival of the East India Company to the Indian subcontinent back as early as the 17th century, with Indians coming to Britain for both economic and educational reasons during the British Raj or the colonial empire, many then returning back to India after a few months or years. Um, We had further migration movements following the Indian independence movement, which led to the partition of 1947, eventually creating countries of Pakistan, Bangladesh and India. The most significant wave um, was following World War II uh, and the breakup of the British Empire, um, and also not forgetting the expulsion of uh, Indian communities in East African countries back in the early 1970s, uh, with Ugandans, Kenyans and Tanzanians coming to Britain. Um, So that's an interesting way to, I guess, look at the broader picture and how we've got to where we are today to introduce the topic more broadly. Um, Priya, would you like to kick start by talking to us a bit more about your housing story?
1: Thanks so much Tanya. Um, So yeah, I guess my my housing story probably isn't that unique um, in the sense that I am born and bred in Harrow. um, And if some of you know Harrow, it's Northwest London. um, It has a huge ethnic minority population, um, nearly Um, 35% of Harry's population is from an ethnic minority population and of that um, 69% is from a South Asian background so we are hugely um, diverse but particularly amongst um, South Asian communities. And this has really shaped the borough. So if you look at the kind of housing, if you look at the um, shops and the kind of corner shops, things like that, a lot of them are run by South Asian communities, or, um, you know, you've got your standard kind of South Asian corner shop, Um, everyone knows it. everyone kind of knows their local corner shop. Um, If you um, look at the housing, for example, it's it's very much mapped on the um, um, South Asian population Um, so if you think about South Asian communities, quite often they, they tend to live in intergenerational households. Um, so you might have up to, you know, three or four generations living within one household, having up to 10 to 12 people within a house. Um, and most um, housing, if you look in, in most boroughs, is best is... Is based on the Western model of um, housing, which is you know your kind of two-bedroom apartment with a very very small balcony, maybe some open space and a and a garden if you're lucky. But actually, most intergenerational households tend to have or tend to want you know four to five bedrooms within the household. They'll want their own garden. They'll want their own privacy because it's very communal in nature, and um, that has really guided the um, planning policy within um, Harrow. So every every borough out there has a local plan, a local Plan tends to guide the number of housing, the infrastructure, the kind of school and um, health allocation within a borough for the next 10 to 15 years. And Harrow's planning policy is no different. Um, Obviously, um, as you know, um, there isn't that much demand for retirement living housing within Harrow um, because it just isn't that common for South Asian communities to have um, grandparents or older people within their families living in assisted living or retirement living housing. So what you tend to find, again, is that kind of multi-generational housing. So that has actually really guided our planning policies. It's very different to, you know, boroughs in um, places like Norfolk or Kent or, you know, other, other parts of the UK which, which tend to have higher populations of white British um, people. So I think that is something which has been really, really distinct in um, Harrow. And something else which is um, quite quite unique to Harrow is... Um, it's got also one of the largest uh, populations of East African Indians as well. So this is the kind of twice um, twice migrant. So firstly, they, they left India, they went to East Africa, they kind of went on um, on the Indian Ocean coastline. So you've got Indians, you know, mainly from Gujarat and, the, and, and Punjab settling in Uganda, Tanya, um Uh, Tanzania and um, Kenya and then you've got South Indians which tended to settle in South Africa and um, all of them have you know quite a lot of things in common they were the kind of first settlers to have left India properly to have set up their homes within East African or African countries more widely and the East Africans who left um, their um, countries or the East African Indians rather who left those countries of um, Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda left because those countries themselves were you know gaining their independence. So they came to the UK, they faced a lot of, um, you know, racism, oppression, you name it, but they were very, very hard workers. And this has really defined their presence um, and their role within different communities. So within Harrow, we've got one of the largest populations of East African um, Indians. Most of them are Gujarati. So I am myself Gujarati. Um, No, not at all biased. Um, but dare I say that East African Indians are some of the most successful um, immigrants within the UK. Um, East African Indians um, tend to contribute the highest GDP per capita um, amongst any ethnic minority population, which I thought was a really interesting fact to just throw in there. But also um, they they tend to have very educated um, kind of offspring. Uh, Most of them tend to go into higher education and again, go into real estate and property, which I think is something which has defined the housing and planning within South Asian communities as well. So I'm going to leave Leave it at that um because I, I i could really talk on forever i'm very proud of my um harrow roots um as as everyone should be from wherever they are um you know loud and proud harrow born and bred um, so yeah over over to you tanya
0: Thank you very much Priya, that was a very impassioned um rhetoric reflecting the wider Harrow community and the wider Gujarati contribution to to Britain Um, and it's something to be definitely very incredibly proud of and that's awesome. If we talk about my housing story now um quite different to yours I guess Priya in the sense that I've moved around quite a lot I've never actually stayed in one place for long enough to I guess call it home but if I were to name one place it'd have to be London as I've spent uh, accumulatively, I'd say, the majority of my life in London, having been born in East London to a typically very South Asian area. um, At one point, I think in my childhood, I was pretty much thinking in, in Bengali. I wasn't actually even thinking in English. So that's a really interesting and it's something I only thought about quite recently because I guess I don't know when it happened, but I then transitioned to speaking um, or thinking in English as opposed to thinking in um, what, what was previously my mother tongue and that was influenced by the fact that the community I grew up in in my childhood was very um, predominantly Bengalis the majority of the school kids um, I went to primary school in in East London so the kids were all um, well the majority of them were Bengali um, and then I moved to South London when I was 10 um, which was a complete shift because uh, the people around me were a majority white so I went from 50 percent Bengali kids to majority white and I was maybe one of a few brown girls I then moved to Florida which is very random um, but as a kid that was an, an awesome experience um, it was now looking back, I don't, I'm quite glad we came back because it was quite an empty um, space in terms of not much progression unless you're retired um, and ready to just spend some money. Um, and I was neither of those as a 12 year old. Um, so I came back to a random place again in North Yorkshire uh, in Teesside um, and it was very different to what I was used to, uh, which was a lot of diversity um, and a lot of different Types of people um, and it was completely different to what I'd imagined and nothing I'd ever expected My brother and I were the only two brown kids in our school Um, We suffered a lot of racism, um, both implicit and explicit But looking back on it, uh, despite the instability, I'd say that I don't have any regrets in that sense Um, And I'm actually pretty grateful to my parents Um, Maybe they had not intended for us to move around so much, but the instability has given me an incredible level of um, resilience and I'd say it was the defining moment of my life living up there because it definitely gave me a lot of character building Um, and but coming back to the East London perspective, um, I think it'll be interesting to share a particular story from someone who i um quite resonate with in terms of my east london experience um, and this is from a resident from tower hamlet name so name soraya um, and she talks about how her fa- her father came to the uk in the early 1950s and contributed to um, the economy uh, by working within east london um, and how many families settled there um, and the intention back then was for families to, well, for men to come to the UK, work, save some money, and then send it back home with the intention to then move back to Bangladesh after, after saving up some money. Um, and so with that intention, as they hadn't planned to stay, a lot of them just continued living in social housing. And Soraya explains how the struggle, therefore, is, is quite difficult um, for her generation as a first-generation British Bangladeshi as there's no lineage of property to take out a secured loan against um, and parents don't really have enough money to help their children in that sense um, and so she talks about the benefits of uh, Asian culture where it's a social norm for married couples to then move into the man's family home where they could have kids and save up to buy their own place um, which which has of course its economic benefits but then she also talks about the stigma about moving in with your in-laws as a woman, um, which comes with its own emotional stress, um, which a lot of Asian women don't really speak out about um, very often. So, that's a very interesting perspective, um, and I can tie it in with my own um, understanding through family friends who've told me some of them who've really enjoyed the fact that they've been able to just move in, um, and they'd always aspired to um, essentially just be mothers um, and just you know marry into a wealthy family, and they're very happy doing that. Whereas I think on the other hand, some people have told me that they wish they'd had that financial independence and had their own jobs, for example, financially, so they were secure. Um, But they're at a point where they need to ask, you know, things that we usually take for granted, going out for dinner with friends or going to a holiday, they need to then ask their partner to be able to do that because they don't actually have their own financial stream of income. Um, and adding to that actually Soraya's story is gentrification. Um, I don't know if anyone saw, but recently the Runnymede Trust published its report um, entitled Beyond Town: Continuity Change and New Urban Economies in Brick Lane, where they talk about, or where they focused on a two-year research project uh, looking at Brick Lane's curry houses. And they looked at how it decreased um, by over 60% in 15 years time. And how a lot of these curry houses are now replaced with vintage clothing stores and hipster cafes and hot chocolate stands and things like that. Um, And how there are other challenges as well, more broadly, rents, rising business rates and things like that. Um, Lack of trained chefs due to visa constraints, lack of support from regeneration agencies and things like that. And perhaps that ties in with planning as well and you can maybe enlighten us on that. But I thought that was quite an interesting perspective and interesting piece of research.
1: Thanks, Tanya. Um, Yeah, so um, some really interesting stories there um, from from Tanya and from Soraya and just to kind of reiterate um over the last few weeks i've received some really fascinating um you know built environment and housing stories from different communities within south asian diaspora and you know some of my favorite have been punjabis in handsworth for example um you know really kind of talking about that corner shop ethos again you know working within that kind of blue blue collar environment i don't like to kind of use that blue collar white collar but unfortunately we still live in a very classist you know society and I think we, we still tend to differentiate jobs based on blue-collar and the more kind of professional-based employment and this this person um Renu her name was um she she was saying how during um during the week after work after school she would um support and would um help her family run the um family business which was a which was a shop and it was within that shop that she learned all of the kind of key skills that we all actually go and get degrees for nowadays so um management accountancy you know things like that hr because they 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 had to hire and fire employees. So actually, all of these things were very very entrepreneurial. And I think again, that really defined and shaped South Asian culture and communities all across the UK, which I found really interesting. And she herself is 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 now a town planner. So she's kind of moved moved ahead. She is you know working um, within the white white collar profession. Um, as we, as we like to call it, but she will still go back to Handsworth to support her family business. She actually said, you know, you can take the girl out of Handsworth, but you can't take the Handsworth out of the Punjabi, which, um, which I really liked. And I think that resonates with a lot of people. If you look all across the country, you've got, you know, Punjabis in um, Southall, you've got the Bangladeshis and Bengalis in East London, Tower Hamlets and Waltham Forest, got Gujaratis in Harrow and Wembley and so on. Again, most of us will probably go on to, you know, have university education, work in, you know, quite high professions. But you can never really take what was within us and what our our childhood kind of defined within us. So I think those were the uh, those were the stories that, that that really stood out for me. And there was one that I actually posted today on my social media from Aaron, who is actually on the call. Um, where he talked about um, Kerala Christians in um, the City of London. So I'm actually going to hand over to Aaron who can share more about this story because it was just fascinating. I've, I've never heard anything like it before and it, it just it just warmed me just how nice it was. So over to you, Aaron.
2: Thanks for putting me on the spot. Uh, so I, I don't think many people know about uh, the Syrian Christians uh, in, in the UK. So we're one of the oldest uh, Christian communities. Uh, in the world actually and when people look at me they always you know oh, you've got such a white name so when i have um when i have business meetings at, at the office people don't know who i am because they don't have, you know my picture up on my profile and they kind of look around with this white guy called aaron matthew and then they and then i have to always put my hand up and go i'm aaron by the way and i think this is a really interesting story about the fact that we don't know much about different communities in india india is just so massive um, so the Syrian Christians were uh, converted by one of, Saint, uh, one of Jesus' disciples, so for 2,000 years we've been Christian. We've had very Christian names. If you've never met a brown guy or girl with a George or a Matthew or a Thomas as a surname, they're probably from this very small community. Um, so the story I kind of posted today was about buying our first church. And so I, I kind of have a similar story to Tanya. I've been all over the world and kind of came back to the UK and in every country I've never been fully British. I've never been fully Indian. So I've kind of latched onto who actually am I? And one of the big questions of that is where do I feel most at home? And then funnily enough, you know, I'm, I'm not that religious anymore. It's, it's that church where, you know, the smells, everything about this building, which is this grade one listed old church in Blackbird. you probably walked past it a thousand times, but it's our community. Um, meets up there every every Sunday uh, and so there's this crazy story and I started to ask the elders you know how did we get this church that you know Shakespeare prayed in like how 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 did we get this and apparently there was this bishop and he was super savvy so he kind of talked to the the Anglican bishops and kind of got this for rent free and 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 I think the story of the church is also the story of immigrants in the UK so we kind of came in at the first and we was really welcomed. Oh, you're Christian. Oh, you have the f- rent free, like, you know, we'd love you to be here. And then slowly after the years, we had different landlords and different priests who were starting to say, oh, your food really really is a little bit uh, much. It smells a bit, you know, I've got a hilarious story of the one of my elders say, uh, the wife of the vicar used to go around spraying perfume after we used to eat after church. And it's such a, you know, if you go to an Anglican church, you don't really eat after. And it's, it's something that's so important to us and um, and then you know uh, they trying to put up the rent and they were trying to saying you know oh it's you know you pay, you're paying too, too little and i think the story it it's a really funny story. And if you look more and more, so all the churches in the in central London are all kind of abandoned and, and they were gonna they were gonna take all these churches away and sell them to you know property developers and I think that comes back to the property thing. And it was only because our church was there and was used and was more full than you know any other church in the area that, that church actually remained as a as a church and wasn't sold or wasn't turned into some other building. So the more you look at your history, I think in the UK, you realize the Indians are so so integral to it and you know all south asians and and yeah just i guess that that's my experience the property and now we you know so from one church we used to rent for free that rent's gone up and now we own 20 churches around the uk and it's just a story of growth it's a story of immigration and you know really succeeding in a country that we decided to make our own but yeah if you have any questions about our my weird little community or (laughs) you you can ask me away
0: Wow, that's super interesting, Aaron. I did have a look at the story um, that Priya posted on the Bayman Property Instagram earlier today. And yeah, I definitely echo um, Priya's, Priya's thoughts in that sense, because it's so unique. And I wouldn't have known about it. Otherwise, if you hadn't. Yeah. And
2: I just want to end with so we, we've asked the church, you know, we've asked the community, can we at least put a plaque up? Can we have say something that we were here? And it's, and no one really wants to do that. And it's it's I think that's another thing is that we don't tell our stories and that we are really important to Britain and to our history and it's our shared history.
1: Thanks so much, Aaron. Um, just um expanding on your on your little story earlier, that was really fascinating. And I think, yeah, um so many people would have found that just so unique and different. So thank you.
0: Thank you. That was awesome. Um yeah, I guess just talking a bit more about the um broadly about the differences between south asian cultures and western cultures um i know pre you touched upon the intergenerational living point as well um i think the one thing that stands out to me or which i see quite common is uh, our sense of community cohesion within south asian cultures like we're very committed to building families and sort of making sure that everything's in one place. And that even ties in with economics as well. Like we prefer to keep our money within the family when it comes to buying houses, whether it's a massive house for everyone, you know, three different generations to share or uh, building a business together with brothers or siblings. Um, whereas with uh, I guess with the British culture, there's a focus a lot more on individuality and shining um, through yourself and doing everything on your own and, building that sense of self sufficiency. Um, I think, I guess both uh, elements are great depending on how you want to live your life. But I think there's so many amazing things that we can take from the South Asian uh, family experience in terms of growing within your own community. Um, and by way of example, care homes, um, I was talking to my mom about this quite recently and um, our grandmother lived with us for several years before she died. And my mom wouldn't like, even the, the topic of care homes, if you brought it up, she would literally just leave the room because it was just, the, the thought of like just dropping someone off at a care home was just so alien to her and um so bizarre that she would never speak about it um but i guess it's something that's a lot more commonly spoken about um within british society and british families because a lot of my friends talk about it and even my partner he talks about it with his um about his grandparents um, and the contrast between the two um, notions is is quite interesting um But I guess there's a lot um, to to take from that in terms of, yes, it's it's good to retain your independence, um, but within the Asian diaspora, that's seen as culturally quite undesirable. Um, And maybe future generations could benefit from today's generations on the importance of, you know, looking beyond raising children and seeking opportunities to prioritize other things as well beyond the family dynamic. Um, Because I think... The dynamic is changing slightly, um, but I guess that's just going to take some time. Another interesting story um, to share is one from South London from a lovely lady called Zed, who's based in a small community in Mitcham it's a small south london town which is predominantly white working class um i've actually lived there before as well when i lived in south london i lived near that area so i'm quite familiar with it Um, and i actually went to primary school with her for about a year so i know her relatively well um and and she is a family friend so it's quite interesting for her story where she talks about how she felt quite well integrated in south london because she had you know eastern europeans english asian african families living around her um and it wasn't until she had uh, experienced an incident at her local tram stop when someone applied the P word to her and she didn't actually realise the magnitude of how it would affect her until she got home and she got really upset about it. Um, and she didn't realise how um, white, I guess, her area was until she then visited her, con- her cousins in East London and realised how diverse East London is in comparison to South London. Having lived in both East and South London and also in, in a different region of, of Britain, one thing that really sticks out to me is how community solidarity is a real thing. So. I never experienced racism in East London and very, I don't think I ever experienced it in South London. Um, I'm sure it does exist, as Zed um, has explained, but I think racial slurs in pockets of large or predominantly South Asian communities are quite rare. For example, if you contrast that with Soraya's story, she didn't actually mention racism. I'm not not saying she didn't experience it, but the fact that it didn't become integral to a housing story, um, I think, is a good indicator of the importance of community ties. You know, If you're in an area where there's a big sense of solidarity among a particular group of people, you're very, um, I guess, you're less likely to be a victim of racism.
1: I just wanted to um, go back on a couple of your points that you made about kind of just some of the differences between housing within South Asian communities and Western cultures. And I think one of the biggest differences is that quite a lot of south asian children will tend to live with their families until um they are engaged even after university you know quite a lot of people once they've graduated will actually go back home and live there and they will commute into london or wherever they are working because there is this kind of notion that you should save money, you, you, sh- you shouldn't waste money on renting. And I think quite a lot of, you know, people will will want to kind of save that money and actually invest it into buying a property. So you've got the one half of people who will just save money and be be able to buy a property, you know, in their in their mid 20s, which believe it or not, a lot of people just just cannot do these days then you'll get the other people who will save money to actually buy to let so they'll just start investing and i think that is very very common amongst south asian communities and that is actually one of the traits which makes them quite successful within whatever domain they do and while a lot of them will do professional qualifications such as um you know finance and acca and so on quite a lot of them will then put those skills after a few years into real estate and property development which i think is quite synonymous within some sects of um South Asian communities particularly um, Gujaratis and Punjabis predominantly so I think those were just um, some of the observations that I have found and I guess um, over the years I think South Asian communities have have really defined our, our towns and cities so if you look at Leicester for example um, Leicester also has one of the highest populations of um, Ugandan Indians so quite a lot of them um, arrived um, in the early 1970s after the um, expulsion of um, the um uh, former president or prime minister rather of um uganda at that at that time and what what's happened is that they have really defined not just leicester but actually all of the uk so quite quite a lot of them came um in the early 1970s and faced um racism as um tanya was saying and i think some of them still did um um some of them still do and even though they had qualifications from everything from you know business to pharmacy to um, to accounting quite a lot of their qualifications in those former countries of uganda or india were not actually applicable over here so a lot of them ended up taking blue collar jobs and actually that that's where that kind of notion of working in supermarkets or owning your own shop came from because they just weren't able to utilize their qualifications and the actual skills that they that they had so that's where that notion of education, you know, education, education without sounding like Tony Blurton actually came from. And I think that that's where it was, you know, very much a case of you have to work 10 times as hard if you're an ethnic minority because you will never be accepted at face value. And I think, you know, that that's why, you know, most ethnic minorities still tend to face hardships when it comes to employment, because um, I guess um, due to... Um, Due to in the past they just weren't able to get those jobs readily available you know they 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 had different names different surnames you know different qualifications unheard universities if they were foreign all of this impacted their employment opportunities that nowadays you tend to find quite a lot of south asian communities adopting more western names or at least changing them when it comes to employment opportunities they might tend to have a have a more Western name within their name. Um, you know, it's, it's it's very much a case of assimilation because if you do try and adopt the Western culture, it just becomes easier when it comes to employment opportunities. So, I know for I know for me, growing up, you know, my 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 parents put my siblings and I into every kind of after school club that there was, just so that we had the opportunity to integrate and to be around other other you know generally white white kids you know we went to swimming classes we went to brownies we did everything the one thing that my parents did actually keep was um they they made me play indian instruments even though i wanted to play the piano i played the indian equivalent of a of a harmonium so that's the only thing which i which i really question because i would i would love to play the piano today um that that being said i do i do love the harmonium and i think it it just goes to show that quite a lot of us as a result of that upbringing of that kind of mixed identity of you know growing up from a south south asian identity but having to adapt to a western notion and western culture we now tend to really, I guess, have a have a love-hate relationship with our own identity and our own culture. And I think quite a lot of people can kind of resonate with that. And if you were to map this on a almost like a normal distribution curve, you you kind of have this journey where you really like love your culture, to where you are kind of like, oh come on, this is just really holding me back. This is stopping me from getting that employment opportunity to actually know what well, I'm gonna embrace my I'm gonna embrace my culture. To there is just so much racism going around. And I think what we're finding now is that this 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 whole month you know south south asian heritage month has given us the opportunity to you know really kind of share our stories and i think that that's what this has really really been about is you know talking about racism talking about oppression talking about our different housing and our living standards and actually looking at how these these identities are different and these have actually shaped and um, formed us so i i I touched upon, you know, more kind of Gujaratis and Punjabis are, you know, owning and actually having real estate. But I think on the other end of the spectrum, you've got obviously such a diverse diaspora within South Asian communities. Tanya touched upon this where she talked about Bangladeshis and Bengalis, you know, not having home ownership. And I think, you know, we are obsessed with home ownership in this country, but it, it does give you so much independence, it gives you so much, so much more than just bricks and mortar. And I think that is something that we all have to remember is that built environment is intertwined in culture and community and i think that's really what shapes our kind of spaces and places so that that that's really for me what what south asian culture and identity is when it when it comes to talking about it within the uk um kind of lens amazing
0: thank you so much for sharing that Um, and you touched upon uh you know corner shops for example something is you know something that can seem so mundane as just starting off with a corner shop because you can't um you know get a job or something like that but then you know being able to work your way up to owning huge businesses and it goes to show um how hard work does pay off even despite the obstacles you know the economic policy group back in 2017 surveyed around 200 asian-owned businesses based in london which contribute, um, they found that they contributed to almost 15,000 jobs and generated 2.7 billion pounds in turnover. And that's just 200 businesses. There are, you know, thousands of them across London and, and beyond, you know, in, in the regions. Um, and one interesting um, statistic that I got from that, which really was, is pretty empowering, especially for women. I think is that one third of Asian businesses in London are actually owned by women, and at least 57% have a female director. Um, And I know we touched upon the idea of, you know, financial dependence for a lot of women who choose to be housewives, who choose to stay at home and be, you know, mums. But I think that statistic um, goes to show that, you know, there is the other side of it, um, and some people might choose to be mothers some people might choose to work and be mothers or some people might just choose a career and when it comes to women i think it's really important particularly for the south asian diaspora to be able to um you know just let them be whatever they want you know if someone wants to do something let them do it it's it's their choice and i think the stigmas that a lot of women face around um you know having children or not having children you being highly successful without intimidating their male counterparts, things like that. You know, there's so many different dynamics, which can, as Priya said, you know, hold some women back, especially when there's the two dimensional cultural struggle of, you know, am I British enough? Am I Asian enough? You know, what am I? That sort of thing. But all of that ties in with the built environment and the community and our wider networks. Um, And yeah, it's, it's been a fascinating discussion, I think. Um, we're very keen to now you know open up the floor to our attendees so if you've got a housing story you'd like to share or perhaps you've got a new perspective or simply an observation that you'd like to make you know please do feel free to do so don't be shy um, if you do have anything to say please do unmute yourselves.
2: Uh, I'll jump in so I'm a civil engineer and obviously the government's now about build 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 is the big thing so what are your thoughts on how build infrastructure relates to uh, racism and a property in the UK where uh, so for example Tower Hamlets has the city of London one of our biggest financial capitals where it has London City Airport a huge airport you know serves the ultimate you know super rich but Tower Hamlets is one of the tenth, tenth most deprived uh, boroughs uh, in the UK so how do you how do you equate you know wealth in infrastructure and property? uh and our worlds with with actually the local community
1: hi aaron um thanks thanks so much for your question really really great one i think um all all across the uk not even just london you see there's just this disparity on your doorstep you've almost got two sides of the same coin you know where you've got high-rise blocks which are owned by the rich and wealthy right beside you know kind of also high-rise blocks, but council housing, social housing, very overcrowded, which really resonates with certain populations, usually ethnic minorities. And I think quite a lot of this does come down to our policymakers and who is, you know, holding that information, who is making those decisions and I think if you look at local authorities, most of them aren't representative of the of the communities that they actually represent. So I think Tower Hamlets does actually have some councillors who are of Bengali Bangladeshi origin, which is fantastic. But they don't necessarily make the policy, if you look at the kind of planning and regeneration team within each council, actually only one council in the in the whole of London, and that's um, Hillingdon, has a um, planning and regeneration team led by an ethnic minority. And just to go back to the point that I made earlier when 45 of the uh, of um, London's population is ethnic minority. There's this huge disparity. So you've got policymakers who don't necessarily understand the population that they're developing for. They don't necessarily understand the different demographics and different ethnic needs, which which comes with this. Quite a lot of the time, there is language barriers. So um, if if there is that language barrier, then information community consultation just isn't up to scratch. You're not able to get that information across to them or actually get it to them in a in a way that actually engages with them. So I think more more recently quite a lot of developers have started using different ch- channels so something which which has happened in um in tower hamlets to really engage with the bengali and bangladesh population over there is actually channeling information through um uh, mosque, mosque leaders so actually going through there and actually saying you know this is what we want to do in your um, local area would you be able to communicate this um, information in you know multiple languages in a way that is actually um understandable to these very people and i think that is actually one of the many ways that we need to start doing it we need to be a little bit more innovative and creative with our community consultation because we 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 can't live in a world where we present ideas to people we need to actually bring them on that journey with us and actually ask them to input into our community consultation into our development and um, infrastructure and i think that is the only way that you will get people on side because in today's society you can never ever go into any community and present them with a you know 20 story building and actually hope that you'll get it uh, you know passed through planning permission you absolutely have to be on their side and you have to try and understand what is it that they want to have in their public realm what is it that they want to have in their open space you know what makes their housing so unique to a western model so you know if if the local council already knows that there is a huge um Bangladeshi or Bengali population within Tower Hamlets, they need to consider that within their local plan and in their planning policy. So actually having more family housing to accommodate, you know, larger, larger families and so on. So I think that is that is part of it, is just really kind of changing our, our planning policy to actually ensure that you know housing and, and infrastructure actually accommodates for the for the very communities that we are out there developing for.
2: And Priya, just a last one. So Obviously, getting involved in the consultation process is important, but how do we make sure that wealth is actually shared to the local area? You know, Canary Wharf is a huge draw for investment, but apparently, you know, it's not going to the local community. What, what's happening with the boroughs? What happen, what's happening with the councils? that mean that it's not being shared out?
1: I think one of the biggest fallbacks with our planning policy is our Section One Hundred Six. So this is like a kind of contribution that developers have to make when it comes to going into communities. So after building, I think usually over building um, forty units, they 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 have to give X amount. So it could be anything from a few thousand to you know to a, to actually a hundred thousand, where they where they give it to the local authority. And because of the influx in um, homes and potentially new residents and a kind of you know higher higher population you would ex- you would assume that there would be more more need or greater need for GP services and um, schools, doctors, you know, a- any other kind of health, health or other in- infrastructure that, that that you might need could even be more um, transport services, you name it, whatever, really. Most developers and local authorities have to actually adhere to this, but it's actually the local authority which determines where this where this money goes. So even if the developer says to, you know, poor, poor you know, poor, poor, poorer residents who attend their consultation yes you know we would like to give you a new school or we'd like to give you a new gp or whatever ultimately that decision does fall upon the local authorities i think ultimately the local authority has to understand that population has to understand demographics where pockets of inequality are within that borough in order to actually allocate resources more efficiently and i think most of the time local authorities don't do that yes we have our local plans yes we have you know different planning teams within our local authorities but most of them don't actually understand the people down on the ground i think that's where there's this huge information and communication gap so i think moving forward there just needs to be better communication better understanding and better collection of um demographic data because that is what's actually going to give us you know that 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 know-how really of where to allocate resources and to ensure you know if if a particular area needs needs a new school or needs more gp services that's that's really what's more important. I think if this pandemic has shown us anything, it's it's really shown that there is such you know um, deficits of resources in especially poorer towns, you know, such, such as Tower Hamlets, you know, that's where there is, you know, huge levels of social housing, um, overcrowding within houses, no um, balconies or no open space, which was particularly difficult during the lockdown. And I think that's just going to help help to show us this kind of link between health and housing that you can't really look at one without looking at the other. And I think if we started looking at planning policy as um, more kind of cross, cross-sectional cross as, as opposed to, you know planning design um, engineering but actually looking at it as more multifaceted and i think we'd be able to approach and deliver much better for me to come in um my name is
3: angela fonzo and i represent an organization called clean air for southland Hayes. now regeneration is one thing but it's having a really detrimental impact where i live you're talking about high rise properties being developed one or two bedrooms, not for the local community needing around about 300,000 for a one bedroom flat. These are flats which are being marketed in Singapore, Hong Kong and China and I spoke to an estate agent today, he said the Chinese will buy them up, they'll leave them vacant and then they'll sell them to make a profit at some point. I think you made something, you made a very good point about the local community being engaged with the property developers. But the property developers are absolutely ruthless, they are driven by profit. They're not interested in the local community. There's a massive redevelopment site called South of Waterside, which used to be a former gas works. It's a brownfield site, and the land there is highly contaminated. So for over three years, the community has experienced pollution in their homes. People have complained about various health symptoms, ranging from asthma, um, to uh, breathlessness, to cancer, even pneumonia. Now, we have followed the correct channels and complained to the site regulator, which is Ealing Council. To be quite frank, they have done nothing. In actual fact, I would accuse them of environmental racism because they will do everything to actually undermine residents by denying their experience. Um, they have no intention of using the Environmental Protection Act to protect us. And that is why CASH is constantly campaigning um, because we want this injustice eradicated. People are truly suffering. And what you're also seeing in South and our people are starting to speak up and say, We've had enough of all these developments. We've had enough of over planning. And there's a young woman who's actually set up a group called Justice for Southall. So I think there is a growing groundswell of people saying, you know, this is not good enough. And you can't even argue that the local councillors are not representative of the population. They are predominantly South Asian, but they keep quiet and they do not speak up for the rights of residents. We're very severely affected when you look at the percentage of social housing it's 30% but we know in the past developers have turned around to council actually we can't meet that requirement and they actually make a payment to local councils so what is going on in Southport is not going to address the the housing shortage and is not going to provide um, accommodation that most people can afford within their budget um so it's truly truly scary what's happening the developers will talk about crossrail the proximity to heathrow airport but it's going to become a tale of two towns and the re- regeneration is not going to impact positively the um businesses on king street and on south of broadway um, it's a truly terrifying prospect what is happening that people are dying it's environmental racism that is falling under the radar
0: thank you thank you very much Angela for your contribution Um, and thank you for writing in the chat function as well a bit more about clean air for Southall and Hayes Um, there's clearly quite a lot happening there and quite a lot to unpack Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm really sorry that this is happening, um, particularly given that, you know, there are councillors who are representing the borough, but it seems as though money seems to trump everything, you know, housing needs, environmental pollution, environmental racism, as you rightly pointed out. But there's clearly, you know, profit takes precedence over yeah. people's livelihoods. And that is such a shame. And I hope you know the coronavirus pandemic actually reverses some of these damages and makes people realize that a lot of the systems that have been in place for so long don't actually function very, very efficiently. The only people they benefit um, are essentially the top 0.5%. And you made a really interesting point about international investors coming here to invest in property. And you know, given the number of homeless people out, outside um, and the number of properties which stand empty for years with no one actually living in them, Especially in you know the fifth richest country in the world, that's pretty, pretty shameful, really.
4: I got um I got a few questions to um to answer to ask. Um, cool. so uh, hi, my name is Anas, and uh, I have this um, youth organization called Sudan Approoted. Um, and I've been hearing the stories of you guys, and it's where I can relate to most of these stories about, um, especially with the identity crisis, um, uh, being in the UK, and you know we have. Always fighting um, to find out who you are. So, my question is how do you now find the balance to uh, motivate and educate the youth um, into investing into uh, properties, especially with um, the culture? My culture is from Sudan, so um, we have similar culture to the Asian community where you have the family values and family ties, and with now the Western culture of individuality, and you kind of like in between the two, but then. Uh, from my um, community, most of our people is um, second generation, especially my age and uh, third generation is coming so we 're kind of new to the u k and especially with the ownership of housing, a lot of people from the older generation haven 't really kind of came to that position to own uh, but you 're stuck as a as a second or third generation in between whether you should uh, follow the family traditions and stay in the house and you know get to the point where you get married or you should leave the house before you even um, achieving all of that stuff. So what advice would you give to the youth in order for them to motivate or find a balance in between um, or from your experiences, maybe you've seen something um, kind of um, related to the same kind of issues.
1: Sure. Priya, do you want to go first? Yeah, thank you. And um, hi, thanks. Thanks for, um, thanks for coming and thanks. Thanks for your contribution just now. I think there are, there are so many different ways of, of, a, of actually approaching this. This question and the one thing I would say is that when you when you are renting, you are essentially paying someone else's mortgage. And I think when you when you you know break it down into that, you know, and you and you try and get 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 someone else to understand that. I think you know that that's where that incentive for for a lot of South Asian you know young. Young people actually comes when it when it when it comes down to well do I do I move out and do I do I start renting or do I just actually stay at home for for a little bit longer be it you know two or two or three years just so I can save that money and put it into my into my own you know home at 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 some point and you know that that goes back to the earlier point I made about you know most South Asian youngsters being able to invest into a property at the age of 25 or um, 26 and I think that's what it gives you. It, It gives you financial independence and I think that is something which is so important when it comes down to moving down generations. I think it gives you that notion and it gives you responsibility, which I think doesn't necessarily come with just um, just just actually not having that, that that home ownership. It gives you something of your own. And I think that is something which is which is really important. I think when you frame it like that, that gives you that incentive to actually save that money and to actually put it towards something like that. Now on the on the flip side i don't think home ownership is is actually everything i think we are quite unique as as a country in in this obsession with with home ownership if you look at our european counterparts I mean, even though we're not necessarily part of the EU anymore, you know, we are still neighbors with, you know, Germany and France and so on. They've got far more of a, of a, of a renting culture, which is, you know, they will live in a, in a, in a certain property for about five or six years before kind of moving on to a, to a different area and then moving on. I think again, that, that, I think to to a certain extent, owning a property does, does tie you down a little bit. Um, it, it gives you more kind of paperwork and it gives you that kind of greater, you know, um, Kind of need to actually stay in like certain jobs for example because you can only get a mortgage if you've been in a certain job for a for a, for a particular time so I guess ultimately it, it comes down to what your desires are and passions are as as an individual if you you know if you want that ownership if you want to have that independence I would say save money and to actually invest it into a property but if you are more of a kind of free flower, I guess and you know you you see your kind of career and your job moving around a little bit more then maybe investing your money into a property isn't the best thing unless you know that you can get it paid by someone else let someone else pay your rent is 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 exactly what i would be saying because i do think that paying paying rent unless you absolutely have to try and avoid it i i read a tweet um a um, few months ago where i where i saw that there was one person who had counted all of the rent money that she had paid over a six year period, and it was £32,000. And if you think about how much money that is, that is enough to save that is that is a deposit in its in its own right. So I think ultimately, it it, it comes down to kind of breaking down the uh, the financials. But also think about where you're investing. So think about the think about the future of um, housing and development and just property in general. So I think what we're going to start seeing more and more is, you know, better design and COVID friendly homes. I think this this pandemic has shown us, you know, the importance of good design, for example. I think we're going to see a, a greater focus on modular housing, for example. So I think people want homes, people want them quickly, but people want to be able to actually bring them down very quickly as well. So I think that is something, think about where you're investing and think about, you know, nowadays people have seen the kind of trade-off between living in cities and actually living on the coast and you know living a bit more further afield so you know thinking about location actually is 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 also very key so actually moving outside of london gives you a cheap property which which may actually allow you to invest into that so i think there are there are so many different factors to consider and if you are interested in the real estate world and you're interested in actually putting your money and actually seeing it grow and actually being paid by 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 someone else i guess if you're going to you know have it you know buy to let i I guess then that that's where you should go but i don't think home ownership should be forced on people because it does come down to the individual and so many different factors to consider themselves so i think that that's that's just my take on it i don't know if if anyone else has got anything else to share on that
0: yeah very much uh echo what what you said to priya there because i think it it does definitely come down to individual aspiration there's this obsession with home ownership and bricks and mortar um i don't think it's necessarily the case with our generation i think it is drifting away quite a bit because people are now more focused on experiences and making memories as opposed to material things i think we have shifted away from that sort of viewpoint whereas i think with our parents generation there was a big drive to uh, own own homes particularly for i think migrants as well there was a big obsession with it because back home in many of our countries you know we, we own several houses um and, and we live off the land and things like that so you know the obsession comes from the desire for human beings to have their own space and taking ownership of that and i i personally think you know home ownership should be a human right i think everyone should be able to own their own home if they want to um this is definitely such a shame that people aren't able to nowadays especially our generation because they're so unaffordable but if you hear you know some of our parents stories they were able to you know buy a home with double their salary and that's something that's just impossible right now so yeah i mean unless you made some very interesting points about you know finding that balance and knowing what it is um that you want but i think that ultimately comes down to yourself but i think it's really important um being a south asian myself i think i do definitely take account of um elders views so my you know my family's views because you know i might not always agree with them ultimately but they've got you know Decades more experience than I have, and they can tell me things that they've learned, um, which I can, you know, imbibe with my own um, decisions as well. Does anyone else have anything to add to
1: the points raised? I sorry, I just I just wanted to add to that, Tanya. I would say that our our parents' um, kind of generation is probably more risk averse, and I think when it when it you know owning a home is, is basically stability, you know, it gives you that kind of, not just bricks and mortar, but gives you the land as you, as you were saying, it gives you something to come, come home to and to actually own. Whereas when you're renting, it's, it's never truly your own. And I think that's, that's something which, as, as a migrant, as, as an immigrant, you you never truly have anything which is your own. So when you are able to say, you know, when you're able to sign that paper and actually say, this is my own home, it's it's more than just the bricks and mortar. It's, it's, it's something where your kind of hard earned money has actually gone into. It's that kind of stability, which which people have just not had for, for such a long time. And I do think that ethos does kind of come down onto, onto our generation, where it's very much a case of, you know, own your own home because you just don't have stability then. So I think, you know, just to, just to go back to tanya's points about listening to our elders you know i you know probably haven't been that interested in owning my own property until very recently and i think you know most of that does does come down to the fact that my parents would like me to have my own property they probably just want to get rid of me i'm probably getting under their feet living at home still um but at the but but at the same time it's very much a case of you know have you have something which is your own and i think you know it it it, 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 it gives you something which which, which renting a property just cannot give you. So I think you know there's that there's that cultural connotation attached to home ownership, which 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 um you know which which is with us as well. And I think if you if you look at some um, Gujarati and kind of Hindu communities, there's huge similarities with the um, Jewish community, for example. You know there are there are things like that entrepreneurial nature. There's that you know kind of obsession with with home ownership, with that um you know education, higher education, things like that. And I think you know that ultimately comes down to two oppressed um, sections of, of, of our global society have invested so much within their own communities. It's about giving them that kind of stamp and that foot on the, on the very land that they are now on. I think ultimately, home ownership is, is embedded in, you know, immigration, in that kind of lack of security, because that, that's what it gives you, gives you just a little bit more security. Absolutely.
4: Uh, thank you for your input. And uh, just one last thing, sorry. Um, so how, um, I mean, I think maybe you already covered this, but um, how, what advice would you give to the youth people to deal with the social pressures um, to owning a house? Because um, I've like from people that I've um, encountered, especially young people, a lot of them feel the pressure that you have to own a house and they have to have this, um, you know, freedom that you're speaking about. So how can you now especially with the current um economical crisis that we actually are going um through how can you now um you know educate them or teach them in a way to deal with that kind of social pressure of owning a house or owning your own property
0: yeah really interesting point and very topical at the moment um i think it's not fair that a lot of people especially the old generation have made caricatures of our generation you know making snide comments like oh you know we'd have enough money if we didn't spend all of it on buying avocado on toast and things like that which is pretty you know deriding to our generation who you know didn't have don't have the luck you know it purely is i think a lot of the time about luck you know born at the right place at the right time you know sometimes i look at my life and i'm like oh imagine if i was you know born at my parents generation i would i'd be like swimming in it right now you know some of the opportunities they had that they could have reaped Um, but I think ultimately is down to, um, I think frugality is, is a big element. I think that's something that we don't necessarily preach in our generation. There's, there's obsession about spending and consumerism. Um, you know, we're expected to have hordes and hordes of cash, um, perhaps, you know, social media, the obsession with, you know, showing off our lives and what we do, um, adds to that pressure as well you know we're looking at other people what they're doing and we want to emulate that or we don't want to miss out we've got fomo things like that i think potentially adds to the pressures of that so i don't think it's just about buying a house i think there's loads of other factors that play into it but ultimately um you are really keen to buy a house you have a stable income um then there's nothing stopping you from saving um i don't know if you listened recently to the chancellor's announcements but we've got you know a full-blown stamp duty holiday um i don't know whether first-time buyers are going to be able to take advantage of that given that they've now stopped 90 percent loan-to-value mortgages so um if you don't have a you know if you if you've got less than a 10% deposit you are unlikely to be able to buy a home. And I'm guessing people in our generation don't have more than a 10% deposit, let alone, you know, uh, even a small couple of thousand saved up. So, and especially, you know, given the redundancies going on as well, um, I don't particularly think schemes like help to buy are particularly beneficial. I think, again, there's a, a profit margin that people want to exploit, um, especially because a lot of the help to buy newer build housing has been um, priced up just so that people can make money off it, the developers can make money off it, and the prices have been inflated. Um, and I know that I'm sounding very dire right now and very negative. Um, but that is literally the reality of the situation, particularly if you live in London. A lot of my friends who live in the regions have, you know, very safely been able to get on the property ladder because it's really cheap to buy a house. And you can do it on one single income. Whereas I think down here you need to have, you know, as um, one of the housing stories, I think Soraya raised the point of you know, it's a shame that you need to be in a relationship a lot of the time to be able to be a homeowner. Um, but I'd say, you know, if you are in that position, if you are in a stable relationship and you see yourself being in in the long term, and you, you know, both have stable incomes, um, there's nothing stopping you from buying your house, do your research. You know, there's plenty of online sites, particularly on the, around the property market, which looks at particular pockets, um, within London and I'm sure other regions as well, where there are, you know, cheaper housing than other areas, um, and it's about sacrificing, I guess, the longer commute time to a lower house price. Ultimately, if you if you talk about metropolitan London, very interesting. Does anyone else have any other points to raise or comments? No. Well, it's been really interesting. Um, I'm extremely hot now. Um, I don't know when the temperatures are going to cool down. I'm praying for rain. I don't know if anyone else has experienced rain today, but I I've had really tiny pockets of a few minutes of rain and I just wanted to pour
1: down. Currently standing next to my fan and I've got my windows open, which might be counterproductive, but I'm it's, it's, it's not helping. So, you know, maybe I need just, just, just need to solve that. Amazing. Thank you to all of you who um,
0: participated today. Um, it's been awesome chatting Um Priya, you've been awesome as well as a co-presenter. Um, I've, discuss some very interesting points with everyone and thank you to all of you for your contributions and for sparing um the better part of an hour talking to us or listening to us i guess and please do um engage with us you can continue the conversation on our social media we've got bayman property and we've got bdf podcast um, both on uh twitter and instagram we have um given you the um names if you haven't already followed us um so please do so if you need anything else um please uh, do let us know. But thank you so much for participating
1: today. I just want to say thank you everyone um for um tuning in this this evening. It was really great to 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 be a part of this conversation with with Tanya and to have all of you joining in with us. Um, so yeah thank you. And um yeah do do continue the conversation post you know South South Asian Heritage Month you know this is a way for us to kind of continue our stamp in this country. So yeah keep 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 doing what we're doing really
0: absolutely um and this episode will be published um as an episode as well on brown don't frown podcast so if you want to tune in again and listen and and want a refresher of what we've discussed then please do uh feel feel free to do that it should be published within the next week or so um so thank you very much everyone and enjoy the rest of your evening thank you for listening to brown don't frown podcast if today's discussion interested you or you want to share your story we'd love to hear from you you can find us on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Brown Don't Frown Podcast and on Twitter at BDF Podcast. You can also reach me on my blog at com. Join the conversation using the hashtag Brown Don't Fram Podcast. Please like, share and subscribe. Thank you.